Good morning, everyone. Glad to see you all here. Not only is it a Women of St. Michael luncheon day, but it's also rainy and cold and gross. So you all get extra credit for being here today. Um, as we let uh, the final few people trickle in this morning, um, do also note this is a luncheon day. I'm right, right? Thank you. Okay. Um, this is a luncheon day, so we've got a number of people who would typically be here who are kind of out in the hallway welcoming people, and I know a few of you have to jump up and leave and get to somewhere to do, be helpful with the luncheon. We will also finish around quarter after 11 to give everyone enough time to go get downstairs, visit a little bit more before the luncheon begins, so no worries about that. For those of you who are new to the study in this week or last week, I have not said in the last couple weeks that we do have these little schedule bookmarks. It goes through the fall and it has date by date what we will be reading each week. It also will confirm for you in writing when we have and do not have Bible study, right? So for example, the Wednesday of Thanksgiving week, no Bible study. All right, I know you want to come. But we will not have one that week. And this will confirm all of that for you. Come on in. And you notice the back doors are open again. I know. You should go see them. They're not, in, they're not finished yet. Um, the angels are being finished at the Waco studio. And so they will go in in about four to six weeks. Um, but at least for now, the door frames and the hardware and everything like that is set and ready. So pick up your bookmarks if you need one. On your way out, they'll be at the back door and the side door at little tables. Throw them in your Bibles so that you have our schedule for the rest of this calendar year. And then we'll start again come January um, with a new schedule of chapters. So today, we will be looking at chapter 5. Chapter 5 really starts to get into the meat of Jesus' ministry, and it's pretty good stuff. And so before we launch in... Let's start with a prayer. The Lord be with you. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you today with grateful hearts for the gift of life and for the mystery of love, and we ask that this week, when there seems to be so much darkness swirling around us, we remember that you are the light of the world and that in us, your light can be reflected into the darkest places. Make space inside of us, Fill us with your spirit, that we may be inspired by you to continue to do the work you've given us to do. And all this we do for the glory of your name. Amen. Amen. Chapter 5 of Luke, divided into three sections, although your Bibles may have divided into more sections. This really gives us kind of a map of the way to walk through it. The first thing we're going to talk about is the first call of the disciples, right? It's really a catch and call and a metaphor and a little mixed metaphors of both fishing and fishing for fish and people. The second area is going to be talking about healing. There are two moments of healing in this chapter, and in those two moments of healing, although they are very different kinds of healings, they're really getting at a very central idea of what Jesus' ministry will be, and so we're going to group those together. And then the third part is going to be the second call, really a question of who can follow Jesus. And so as we begin, put this in your mind, here's our map. We're going to move through these three sections. You know, I like context or big picture. It helps me stay um, attentive to the details. So context, we come to this point in 
time, this point in the gospel, where Jesus has been living in Capernaum. All right, by the time we went to the, got to the end of chapter 4, Jesus had sort of relocated from his hometown of Nazareth, um, and we had... Who's been using this? Hold on. Is this the same one I had last week? Let's see. Because I drew a map. Do we have to have a map? Here it is. My map. <laughs> so just as a reminder, Jerusalem's down here in the middle of the country. Nazareth is in sort of the northwest part. Capernaum is up here near the Sea of Galilee, the fishing village. And that, when Jesus is more or less rejected from Nazareth, he hops over to the east side of the country to Capernaum where he sets up shop. And as we talked about last week, Capernaum is a functioning Jewish community. He would have gone to the synagogues. He would have begun to teach. He would have been walking around and just doing random things. And so by the time we get to the beginning of chapter 4, Jesus is a known quantity. That's really what I want to make sure we know. We oftentimes like to lift up the call of the disciples as this random first moment. And aren't they incredible that they would just drop everything and follow this guy they don't know? It's not really accurate. They still dropped all their stuff and followed Jesus, but they knew him. He had been teaching. He'd been around. He'd been creating crowds and doing some interesting things. So by the time we get to chapter 5, he is not unknown, all right? He has been around. And when he has this experience with Simon and the other fishermen, they have sort of been prepared in at least a small way to receive the experience and the call. So let's jump in. Beginning of chapter 5, we find Jesus on the shore of Lake Gennesaret. That is the Sea of Galilee. So in case that was missed, I've referenced before the Sea of Galilee is like a big lake. It really was called Lake Gennesaret. Sea of Galilee was a, depending on where you were from, you called it a different name. And so don't be confused. He is at Capernaum at the Sea of Galilee. It's just another name for the same body of water. Jesus is teaching. He's created a scene and he has drawn a crowd. And as you can imagine, if you're on the same level with a lot of people, it's difficult to be seen and it's even more difficult to be heard. There is no amplification, nothing like that. And so Jesus takes advantage of the physical uh, distinctive quality of this area. So let me tell you real fast, the Sea of Galilee or Lake Gennesaret is, I think we noted last, last week, very deep because it's surrounded by some... I'll say big hills. They're not mountains. They're not the most impressive mountains ever, but they're, they're quite large. And they are high from the shore pretty quickly. And so you can imagine that underneath the water level, it continues to go very deep. And so it's, it's the kind of body of water where big fish can grow. And that's why the fishermen tend to use that body of water to find their fish. Jesus is along the shore, but the shore is very rocky. So this is not a beach this is at best, in small spaces, rocky, right? Kind of real big gravel is really what it would be like. And that's where the fishermen come in and out on their boats. In other parts of the lake, 
it's hardly a shoreline at all. There are large volcanic stones, big, like the size of cars, some of them, that line the edge of the water. And so this is a former volcanic area. You see these big boulders all over the place. And just as a side note, when we get to, um, you know, the Sermon on the Mount is in Matthew, so we're not gonna have quite that same story here. But when you imagine the Sermon on the Mount, I used to imagine a nice, lush, green, do y'all remember um, Blueberries for Sal? I love that book. And Blueberries for Sal had those lovely pastoral scenes, like the big rolling hill, and you had Sal on one side and her mom on the other side of the hill, and they didn't know where each other was. That's what I always imagined. Jesus was sitting in like lush grass, and it was lovely. In fact, it's a lot of rocks. And so people would have been sitting on rocks, these kind of chair-sized rocks to listen to Jesus speak. And that's really what everything was around this area. Again, it's a little drier than we might expect, and it's filled with rocks. And there's this very small shoreline where Jesus could have gathered a crowd to teach. And what we find in the beginning of chapter 5 is that Jesus' crowd is too big, they can't really hear him. And so he sees these fishermen off to the side, cleaning up their boats. These fishermen fished at night. They did not fish during the day. And so this is the morning, they're cleaning up and they're going home to rest before they come back that night to fish some more. And Jesus finds Simon and says, hey, can you take me out a little bit into the water? Because he wanted to use the natural acoustics of the water to teach from the boat toward the shore so people could hear him better. As he's out there in the boat teaching, He knows that Simon and the rest of his fishermen friends had not done well that night. And so he says to Simon, hey, throw your net over the side of the boat. And Simon, I imagine, you know, a little mixed, you know, Simon's a pro, right? I mean, obviously could not make a living if he could not fish. And so the fact that he didn't fish well last night was likely frustrating to him. And here is that guy who walks around talking, right? Um, I remember years ago, my children at dinner one night said, what do you do? (laughs) And I said, I mean, you know, I'm a priest, right? And they said, yeah, but I mean, what do you do during the day? And I thought about it for a minute because I don't know that I'd ever really answered that question. And I looked at them and I said, you know what I do? I talk. That's pretty much what I do all day is talk. And so I sympathize with Simon because, you know, here is Jesus who basically all he does is talk, right? I mean, he walks around talking and some people like what he says and some people don't like what he says. And here he is in his boat and he is tired, right? Like the teacher wants to go out in the water for a minute. Okay. But seriously, you want me to fish? You have no idea what you're talking about, right? You don't, you're not a fisherman. But then he says, fine, you know, whatever. Um, I can, can you see sort of like the eye roll of Simon? Like, sure, Jesus. Okay. Um, and so throws his nets over the boat and immediately is swallowed up with fish, right? They do not fish during the day because the fish don't come in the nets during the day. They fish at night. Not only did they not fish well that night, it is also the daytime when you don't fish. And yet here they are, swallowed up with fish, so much so that they're about to fall over, capsize this boat from the weight. And so Simon begins yelling to his friends, come on out here, you got to help me. And they just fill up their boats as much as possible and come back into the shore. And at that point, Jesus is probably feeling pretty good, right? (laughs) 
You know, he probably, he doesn't, Luke doesn't say he says, I told you so, but he probably did. (laughs) Then he says to Simon, I want you to follow me. And Simon says, to do what? And Jesus said, well, you've been catching fish, but if you follow me, you'll catch people. This is a really incredible moment. And I want us to consider really what it is like for us. And this is hard for us what it would be like to actually meet Jesus for the first time. And not the person necessarily, but Jesus in his full expression, in his, in his full embodiment of God, because that's really what happens in that moment. He knew Jesus, the guy, Jesus, the teacher. But in that moment, he really met Jesus for the first time. And his response is so faithful. They just leave and follow him. What would we do if we were out in our world doing our stuff, right? Every person in this room is good at something. Most people in this room are good at many things. If somebody that you knew and maybe you liked wanted to tell you how to do what you know how to do better when they have no idea what you do, how would you respond? And if for some reason that person was able to help you see something about yourself that you never saw before, would you change? That's really the challenge of this story for us. How open are we to change? Because I'll tell you, we're not open. You know, we are very good at doing stuff well, and we like the way we do it, and we don't want to do it differently. Like we have actually decided to live the way we live, way more so than anyone that Jesus experiences, right? We've got so many resources and so much capacity to make our life exactly as we want it to be. We have so many choices and options, so many different ways that we can tweak and blend and mold and make our lives just right that we are so that much more resistant to change. And here we have an example of these people who are pros, living a perfectly good life, who leave it all because this guy has shown them something that they never saw before. There's a question of being prepared to meet Jesus. That's really what church is about to be. From my perspective, why we come to church is that we are reminded regularly, formed and nudged and molded regularly to prepare to meet Christ, not necessarily to find Jesus here because God's everywhere, right? Church, this building, this campus does not have some kind of, you know, in on God's presence. God's everywhere. But what we do do here is tweak our perspective just enough so that when we see the face of Christ out in the world, we can recognize him. That's what we're really bad at doing, right? Is recognizing Jesus. We are very good at doing what we want, but when our life is interrupted in some way, our typical response is to be annoyed, not to look for Christ. And perhaps we can be nudged this morning to work on that response just a little.
because Jesus never comes the way we expect, but he comes. And if we're not careful, we'll miss him. So Simon falls on his knees in front of Jesus, and Jesus literally lifts him up off the ground to follow him, and they go. And so Jesus in this moment now has some people, right? We all need people. Jesus has got some people for the first time. So as we jump forward in the chapter, I want to pause because we're going to go to part two. Any questions or observations or thoughts? I only have about 45 minutes today, so we've got to move fast. Did I ever tell you that when I was in an education class, um, they told me that you have to wait seven seconds for people to form a question in their mind? So that's why I haven't somehow lost consciousness. I'm just waiting. <laughs> Moving on to the second part of this chapter, we've seen Jesus heal before, but now this is taking on a new identity, right? Jesus has become a known quantity. We've already noted that he's drawing crowds, and he's not just drawing crowds from the country folk. He's drawing crowds from the city leaders too. And in this story, we have two healing moments, one with a leprech, uh, someone who has leprosy, and one someone who is paralyzed. So we'll take them both in order. But to note before we do so that, yeah, will you get that? Thank you. I keep watching you look at it too. Um, in, the, in both stories, someone's healed. But in both stories, the real idea is that Jesus is impacting the way that the Jewish people understand healing and cleanliness, right? There is a difference between being sick and being unclean. And so I want to note that before we get into the actual meat of the story. For Jews, there is an idea of being sick, right? I mean, of course people got sick. But most people who are sick are also unclean and can become clean again. But there are some sicknesses that make someone unclean permanently. That's really what's happening with these two people. This is not just a fever that someone gets over. This is not just something small like a woman, you know, we'll, we'll see later on the woman who was bleeding and hemorrhaging, right? There are plenty of things that happen in the lives of these people where they are unclean for a time and they can get clean again from a ritualistic standpoint. For these two people, the person who has leprosy and the person who is paralyzed, their sickness has also made them permanently unclean. If they are hurt in some way, blind or deaf or paralyzed, or have some kind of condition like leprosy, they're not gonna be healed, and therefore they will never be clean again. Jesus's healing here is both physical and it is also spiritual. And it's something for us to note very plainly before we get into the meat of the story. So a word on leprosy. Leprosy is a bacterial infection, right? Leprosy has been around kind of forever. It's a very simple sort of thing that people have gotten for thousands and thousands of years, but without an antibiotic kind of treatment, course of treatment, 
there, you didn't really heal from it until modern day. In fact, really not until the mid 20th century were people being healed of leprosy in any significant way. As late as 1980, there were five and a half million cases of leprosy around the world. But two years ago, the World Health Organization counted that there were le now less than 200,000 around the world, just because we've got broad spectrum antibiotics, people can receive the IV kind of treatments on top of their skin and everything else like that. So leprosy was kind of contagious, but it's not like the flu or other sorts of highly contagious things. Yes, you could catch it from somebody, but it was not that easy. However, in the ancient world, it's the kind of thing where once you've got it, you've got it. So lepers, people with leprosy, were sent away from the community and they were not, they were not shunned forever, but they were kept at a distance so that people would not come into contact with them. And so in, there are many cases in other kinds of stories where families who may have a loved one who gets leprosy, they have to leave the house, but the family may prepare food for them every day. And the person with leprosy, like a stray dog, would come back to the house, get some food, and then go back to whatever little separate area or colony they may live in. So this is a, an interesting kind of dynamic, right? They're not gone forever, but they're really outside the circle of family function, and they're most certainly out of the circle of the faith, right? So as a Jew, if you could not worship, if you could not go to temple, go to synagogue, then you really could not fulfill your legal requirements, and so you were not in good standing. When Jesus meets this leper, Jesus touches him, and I want to note the touch. As I said, it's not highly contagious, but it is contagious. So lepers would never have been touched. But put yourself in the shoes of that leper. Lepers would never have been touched. Think about what it would be like to go years and years without ever touching anyone. I'll never forget a number of years ago, I met a woman in church and I hadn't known her and I, she came every single Sunday and it was just one of those weeks where I said, I just want to introduce myself because we haven't had a chance to talk. And I said, you know, why do you like coming to this church? And you know, what do you do? And that sort of stuff. And she said, I love coming on Sundays because I live by myself. And I said, well, what's your favorite part about coming on Sundays? And she said, the peace, because it's the only time during the week where I get to touch someone else, right? We love to touch, right? We're made to touch each other appropriately. And <laughs> that kind of touch is life-giving. And so in this, in this story of Jesus and the leper, there's a lot happening here, many, many different levels. You've got just the physical illness level, right, that Jesus is, uh, heals. You've got the spiritual level within the community that Jesus heals. But then you've got this personal level of healing where Jesus, through a touch, I mean, can you imagine that leper would probably have preferred that Jesus touch him than even heal him, right? But Jesus does it all. In a way, it is Jesus's profound cleanliness, right? His holiness that washes over this person and cleans them for good, right? The leprosy 
may be the physical manifestation, but there is a much deeper idea here of healing. And it's through Jesus's touch, his presence in this person's life that he has changed for good forever. Then what does Jesus say to the leper? Go and show yourself to the priests. Jesus is not doing this in secret. Jesus is doing this and he has embraced the public nature of his ministry. And he wants to send this leper back to the priests. And so do remember, lepers weren't gone forever, but they were definitely separate. If you saw this man no longer deformed from the leprosy, people would have recognized him. They would have known he's the guy who was the leper. How many times do we hear that sort of thing? Hey, isn't that so-and-so? Whenever Jesus does something to change them, they've been changed but they're still them, just better. In the same way the leper is, is that way. People know it's him, but he has been healed and more profoundly even than just on the outside. Then we jump from the leper to the paralytic. And this is a great story. Lots of good imagery, right? We probably, it's difficult for us to really put ourselves in the shoes of say a leper. However, we all know we may ourselves be infirmed in some physical way, or we know people who are. And you know, we want, we want to do something for people, right? Whether that's as simple as open a door for someone who may have trouble opening and holding a door and walking through, or it's making a seat for somebody or helping someone in and out of a chair. I mean, we've all done this, right? And it's a kindness. These friends of this paralytic go the extra mile right? Jesus has created a lot of energy. There's a lot of people around him all the time. And these people want their friend to be healed. And so what do they do? They jump up on the roof and they lower this guy through the roof. It's brilliant. And I mean, it's kind of scary, right? Um, can you imagine being the paralytic? Like, seriously, don't drop me, you know? Um, and so Jesus touches this man. He is healed miraculously. But what really begins to happen in this scene is that the Pharisees start to have an issue with Jesus. So in the Gospel of Luke, although we know the Pharisees, this is the first time that they're introduced. All right, so do note, chapter 5, Pharisees come on the scene. And the Pharisees, like the Sadducees, are a group of Jews who have mm, feel as though they have figured out the right way to relate to God, right? There is a, a macro reception of the law, right? Moses and the law. And over the tradition, you know, hundreds and hundreds of years, people have tweaked and bumped and changed whatever the law means to the, how you live your life. But the Pharisees and the Sadducees are the two groups at this time who have really laid claim to what it means to be godly, what it means to be a good Jew. And as Christians, we get this, right? We certainly know that there are Christian groups who claim to know the right way to be Christian, right? The right way to relate to God. And I'm not calling anyone a Pharisee, but I'm just saying that this is nothing new, right? Humans like to think they know, 
The Pharisees are on the scene here. But before Jesus even heals this paralytic physically, what does he say? Your sins are forgiven. And the Pharisees freak out. Who is he to forgive sins? Who is Jesus to speak for God? Because that's really what they take issue with here. It's not about the sins. It's about who gets to forgive the sins. And who gets to forgive the sins? God. But the Pharisees have figured out how to kind of transactionally represent God's forgiveness, right? And this is sort of akin to the Middle Ages where priests would say like they figured out how to forgive your sins. And so if you do X, Y, or Z, if you give this much money, if you say these prayers, um, you know, I always get to this at some point, but when I was a kid, being in the Catholic Church, there was always this sense of you had to go to reconciliation, right? You had to go to confession. And in confession, based on whatever you had to confess, the priest gave you some prayers, right? And so I always imagined if I were really a bad kid, I would have gotten a lot more prayers or like harder prayers or something like that because I never had anything good. Mine, I was always like, I talked back to my parents. I was mean to my sister, right? That's all I got. I really was not that exciting. And so I always got something simple like an Our Father and Five Hail Marys, right? But I always imagined, I'm not kidding. um, I always imagined that there was some kind of like cheat sheet um, that the priest had, like if it's a level three offense, then you have this, you know, I mean, something like that. And that's, that's really how the Pharisees have stratified faith, right? They understand this. Jesus is not a Pharisee. He has not gone through orientation. He has not been inducted. He has not done anything that he is supposed to be to claim this authority. And so when he says your sins are forgiven, they lose it. And Jesus' response is great. Is it easier to say that someone's sins are forgiven or to tell someone to get up and walk? And so just to twist the knife, Jesus says, get up. And the guy walks away. And so the Pharisees are really kind of put out by this, right? Not only has he claimed this sort of authority, but he has shown without a doubt to all of the people gathered in that crowd that he knows something they don't know. He can do stuff they can't do. He's got some kind of connection because it is very likely that the Pharisees aren't telling paralyzed people to get up and walk. They had some moral authority, yes. But these people saw this man, and again, a guy they knew. Remember, this is not Dallas, all right? There aren't millions and millions of people in this community, right? You're talking about thousands at best, you know everybody, right? This would be like dropping into your high school, right? I had about 3,000 people in my high school. I may not have known everybody, but I knew everybody, right? I mean, there's a rare day that I saw somebody I'd never seen before, right? That's sort of what this is. They knew that guy. That guy had not walked in who knows how long, maybe ever, but then he does. This is not a parlor trick, right? This is not snake oil out of a little truck that someone drives in. This is a person who could not walk and who can now walk. And the Pharisees begin 
to try to figure out how they can undo him, right? This is for Luke, the real beginning of the people who have the power and the authority wanting to take him out, right? This is what Jesus is doing that will ultimately get him killed. It starts today. At the end of this section of the chapter, the crowd says, we've seen some amazing things today. And in the Greek, the word amazing is actually the word for paradox. What they're really saying is we've seen some stuff that we do not understand, but it's good enough to try and figure out. And so what they've, they are in a way, I think representing most of us. We in some way have seen God work in a mysterious way, right? We may not really be able to explain it. We don't even know really what happened, but we have sensed that God's mysterious power is a real thing, enough to where we are willing to pursue it, right? We're willing to sit here on a rainy cold day or show up in church or pray with a friend. Something about this is real. Most of us are likely not experiencing the miraculous every day, but we experience enough of what we don't understand of a paradox to follow. And that's really what happens to the crowd today. There's something with that guy. I don't understand it, but it's amazing. And I'm going to try and figure it out. All right. Any questions or comments about that before we finish with the third section? Mm -hmm. Not technically. Okay. So the question is, with the 12 tribes of Israel, there was a tribe, the tribe of Levi, right? The Levites. And we're going to get to Levi in just a second. The tribe of the Levites really were the priestly class, right? They were kind of the, they were the ones, each tribe had a skill, so to say, so to speak, or maybe a charism is a better way to put it. Something inherent within that group that gave them the capacity to do a thing better than other people. And the Levites were the priests. So they were the priestly class. By the time you get to Jesus's um, day, where you've got Pharisees, the Sadducees, they're not the only ones, by the way. So John the Baptist, I think I mentioned a couple weeks ago, John the Baptist was likely a member of the Essenes, right? The Essenes were the ones who were kind of on the outside. They were the hippie Jews, right? And so they weren't interested in power or authority. They were the ones who lived outside. It was sort of like Woodstock by the, sea of, by the Dead Sea. Um, but there were multiple little groups like that around. And the Pharisees and Sadducees would have been made up of Levites, but not only Levites. At this point, people had, tribes were not really that big a deal. People likely knew if they were descended from a particular tribe, but it would be like, you know, if you know you're mostly German or you're mostly, you know, Iranian or Chinese or something, like that kind of matters but not a huge amount. You know it, but it's not, no, no, no. You do not have to be a member of any tribe to be in the Pharisee or Sadducee class. They really were like, like seminaries, right? I mean, in essence, these were holy people. You could almost equate them to be like Jesuits and Dominicans and Franciscans, right? I mean, they're almost orders of Jewish clergy. 
kind of. That's not exactly right, but that's close. Yes. Any other questions? Part three. At the beginning of this chapter, we have an experience of a call. Jesus puts a call on these fishermen. At the end of chapter five, we see a second kind of call happen to Levi, who is a tax collector. They're different because of the way that the people are understood within their culture. So a fisherman, not privileged, not necessarily authoritative, but within the culture, respected, right? It is good, honest work. They may not be well-educated, but they could be good people, right? And they were probably mostly good people. They may have drank too much, but you know, whatever. Then you've got the tax collectors, probably very well-educated, also Jewish, very authoritative, but definitely not respected. Definitely not the kind of people someone would say to their child, one day I hope you become a tax collector. <laughs> you know, that is not what people wish for their children. And so a note about what a tax collector would have been at this time, Levi was a Jew, right? So do note that. The tax collectors were Jewish, but they were like traitor Jews. They, not traitor Joes. <laughs> traitor Jews. They gave up connection to their community in order to get stuff, right? So in essence, they, mm, they swindled and squeezed their Jewish brothers and sisters out of money in order to benefit Rome. And because they did it, Rome thanked them generously. So they would have lived well, much better than they would have otherwise. But because they lived well, the other Jews that they grew up with would have cast them out, right? They would have ignored them, not welcome anywhere, certainly not welcome to talk to rabbis. That sets the scene when Jesus meets Levi and says to Levi, I want you to follow me. Levi immediately says yes. Levi may not be a leper or a paralytic, but he is very sick. And Jesus sees his illness beyond what the world sees. In just the same way that Jesus touched the leper, Jesus touches Levi, who just like the leper would have felt extremely isolated and alone. And Jesus reaches out to him and touches him in a way that brings him back to the community, that brings him back to be the kind of person that he really wants to be, but he's just kind of gotten lost. And then we see this scene where Levi hosts a dinner party. And just like we do, if you found a new thing, or I mean, Mary Kay, figured this out really well, right? You find something you like, have a dinner party, and then sell it to all your friends. And in essence, Levi's doing that in this moment, right? Levi found something he liked, found this hope in this guy, and so brings all his friends together so he can sell them on the goodness of Jesus too. 
And what I think is so funny is who's at the dinner party? A bunch of other tax collectors, right? Because nobody else is going to be friends with the tax collectors. They have to be friends with each other. And so Levi brings all these other tax collectors together. And then Jesus is criticized for being with the tax collectors. And when Jesus is criticized for being with the tax collectors, what is his response? Jesus says, who am I supposed to go save? The healthy people? I've got to go where the sick people are if I want to save sick people, heal sick people. Jesus is kind of like a doctor, right? Doctors don't really like dealing with healthy people. They may say they do, but that's not really right, right? I mean, a surgeons don't like to never cut, right? So Jesus is like a doctor who needs some sick people in order to do what he's supposed to do, what he loves to do. And so again, the Pharisees are there challenging Jesus, right? And we can imagine that within chapter 5, there's been sort of a, a sea change, right? Jesus is a known quantity, and the Pharisees show up to watch what he's doing, and they finally start challenging him, and now they're following him, right? I mean, they're like the detractors who are in the crowd always yelling at Jesus to prove it, right? Well, what about this? Well, what about that? And they're here again at a dinner party, right? Challenging Jesus for doing this thing that he's not supposed to do. By being with the tax collectors, he is making himself unclean in the eyes of the world. But he brings to this group a holy cleansing that the world does not understand. He uses a few different phrases here at the end of chapter 5 to say when they challenge him, because they know that he's connected to John the Baptist in some way, so they bring up John's disciples. Now, remember, I think in week two or three, I talked about how it is very normal that a person who is a teacher gathers disciples around him, right? And sorry, it was all hymns. A teacher gathers disciples around him and teaches. This is Socratic, right? I mean, that is the way of this world. As a student, you find a teacher you want to learn from so that at some point you'll become a teacher yourself. So John the Baptist, although a prophet, yes, was also a teacher and would have had his own disciples, which is why John in most of the Gospels says something to the effect of, it's not me, it is him. John has to say that right? Jesus can't say it or else John's followers won't hear it. John has to be the one who says, I know you like me and I have taught you lots of good stuff, but who you are really looking for is him. But the Pharisees know about John and Jesus, their relationship. They've got disciples themselves. And so they say, listen, John's disciples followed the laws better than yours. How do you explain that? And Jesus uses these wonderful metaphors. Do you expect that people at a wedding banquet won't celebrate the bridegroom? What Jesus is really saying is, I am something new. Or John's like the planner who sets up the party, but I start the party. 
And so you might wait to eat until the party starts. But once the party starts, why would you stop? Why would you not eat? And again, he says, it's like you've got an old garment and it needs to be repaired. You're not going to go find a new garment and cut it up to patch the old one because now the old one looks janky and the new one is ruined. Jesus is saying he's brought something new and this newness is for everybody. And the people who were already in don't like it because if you're in, you're only in when others are out and they like their status. And Jesus is challenging the status that they have loved having and cultivating and they're gonna get them at the end. That's all the time we have for today. It's great to see you all and I hope that you are staying for the Women of St. Michael luncheon. And if not, I will see you next week. Thank you all.